Well, greetings and welcome to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Jason. Uh, you can visit our website at logicalbelief.org. Uh, you can watch these podcasts on YouTube. Just search for Logical Belief, Logical Belief Ministries, or my name, Jason Mullet. Uh, you should be able to find us and subscribe to the channel there. You can also search for us on iTunes. Search for Logical Belief and subscribe to the audio feed there. Uh, you can find both the audio and video at the website top menu bar just click on podcast you can find all the previous episodes there if you want to send me a word of encouragement or have a question um, for me just send those to jason at logicalbelief.org i would encourage you if you enjoy the show and are a regular listener that you rate us on itunes that'll improve our rating there Uh, so go ahead and do that Uh, subscribe to us on youtube and uh, also like our Facebook page. So I'd appreciate if you would do that. NorCal Fire comes to Redwood City, California, September 9th and 10th. Hosted by Striving for Eternity Ministries, NorCal Fire, designed to equip you to talk to the lost and immediately put what you learn into practice with guidance and support from seasoned evangelists. The topic is the Word of God with J.D. Hall, Carl Kirby Sr., Carl Kirby Jr., and Andrew Rappaport. There's a special debate, Is Hell Continual?, on Friday, September 9th. For details and to register, go to norcalfire.info. All right. Well, um, it's been a long day for me. Um, we had an outage at work and <laughs> was working late, and that's just how it goes when you are in IT. And I wanted to um, get a podcast out this week. I did not get one out last weekend, and I want to get one out before the upcoming debate or discussion that I have this weekend, this Saturday at uh, 10 a.m., talk about that in just a little bit here but I just wanted to get a quick podcast out. I don't even know how long this is going to be um, I haven't prepared that much for this so usually I spend a lot of time uh, preparing for these podcasts and this time I just have a few things I want to talk about uh, briefly so I don't even know how long this particular one will be um, but uh, so I just wanted to note that I will be having a discussion with Paul Pavo. I don't know how to say his last name, actually, but I think it's Paul Pavo. Um, We're going to be discussing um, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, um, and that will be this weekend. Paul has a website um, called uh, christian-history.com. And on there, he has uh, some disparaging articles on Calvinism. And in particular, he uh, has some things against the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. So I think that's a very important discussion. I think it's one that needs to be had. And so Paul has agreed to come on and have a discussion about that particular topic. So hopefully that will be enjoyable and edifying to you guys out there, and that will take place this weekend. Uh, the following weekend I will have um, uh, Pastor Stan Gibson back on and to discuss Freemasonry again. So just wanted to quickly put out an episode today um, and just discuss a few things. I uh, received an email from... Uh, one of the listeners uh, to my show, and he sent me two articles which I actually want to address today and talk about. And um, he sent them in response to, at least one of them, in response to um, the podcast episode I did on New Covenant Theology. And he sent me a link to an article by... Conrad Morell uh, on the I'll be honest.com website and I believe um, I'll be honest is a ministry of uh, there's a reformed church uh, I believe Tim Conway is one of the uh, main pastors there and I think that's where this comes from and I, I appreciate a lot of things that uh, Tim Conway and a lot of the uh, 
members of that uh, church. It's in Texas, I believe. Uh, appreciate a lot of their ministry work and a lot of things. But this particular article on the I'll Be Honest website have some uh, serious issues with it. So we'll we'll discuss that. And that was something that um, um, Greg, uh, a listener to the podcast, um, sent me a link to that article. So I just I wanted to briefly take a moment today and and talk about it and some of the issues that I see with that, which are related to New Covenant theology. And I think uh, is also comes out of a historically Anabaptist view of the law of God and just uh, some of the, the fundamental issues that um, um, come with that particular view of the moral law and the law of Moses. Uh, so so we'll get that to that in just a little bit. Um, but this is something I've been wanting to do um, for a while, and I've been wanting to... Uh, go through some different books I would encourage you as listeners to to read um, and if you're not aware we do have a books uh, section on the website and so I'm just gonna go ahead and I'm gonna go ahead and switch screens here you can see my desktop over here I'm just gonna go through some of the books here that I would really recommend uh, that you would that you would read and um, First of all, I've always talked about this book, but The Ultimate Proof of Creation by Dr. Jason Lyell. It's a book I would recommend, highly recommend that you would get and read. Um, and with all these books I'm going to recommend, um, I, I've read these, so um, I'm, I'm not making my recommendations blind here. So uh, The Ultimate Proof of Creation, I've actually read this one twice, I think. Um, great book for kind of a primer into presuppositional apologetics. I would really encourage you that are getting early on into apologetics to check that out. Um, another book here is, uh, it, once you've read that, is Graduate to uh, Dr. Greg Bonson's book, Presuppositional Apologetics Stated and Defended. Um, that is a great resource. Um, another one to greatly... Um, help you grow in holiness before the Lord and uh, that is something that all of us Christians need is to walk holy and humbly before our God and that is John Owen's book The Mortification of Sin that is a great book I'd really encourage you to read that um, and I Have Holiness by J.C. Ryle that's another book I've been wanting to read it's on my to-do list and I just I haven't read that is one particular book I've not read yet so but I've heard that is really good I would also recommend a few books by Dr. James White particularly three and that is the Forgotten Trinity which I've brought up before very useful for Christians to make sure that you understand biblically the doctrine of the Trinity very useful for me it was a book I've read many years ago now but uh, it's been very helpful uh, to me, and I've reread different portions of it uh, since then, uh, just because it's uh, it's really so such a good work. Um, also, the book uh, "The God Who Justifies," fantastic work by James White on understanding justification and justification by faith, the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and uh, just a great book. Read that uh, several years ago, and also the Potter's Freedom is classic work um, in response to Geisler's. Uh, work chosen but free. I would highly recommend that. There's also several books by um, Ken Ham and uh, I think it's Bodie Hodge um, and several other authors. How do we know the Bible is true? Uh, volume one and two. Uh, I'd recommend that you read those. Um, the Lie Evolution by Ken Ham. Uh, also, Jason Lyell has two books which I really enjoyed too, Discerning Truth and Taking Back Astronomy by Jason Lyell. Very good. Um, if you also want to get into uh, more scientific things, uh, Universe by Design by uh, physicist Dr. Uh, Danny Faulkner. Um, also, there's another book which I just have not put on here, and I need to put that on uh, the books list here, is Dr. Russell Humphrey's book, Starlight and Time, I believe is the title of it. I would highly recommend that book. Um, he has a very interesting theory there on white hole cosmology, which I find very interesting and very convincing. Um, he also uh, goes into uh, the magnetic fields of the planets and how 
that particular um, uh, scientific discovery uh, lends itself and fits very, very nicely with the timeline of biblical creation. Uh, another series that I would highly recommend that you read, and I've read the entire series, and it's a three-volume set, is by NHR Needham, is The 2,000 Years of Christ's Power. It's a series on church history, which goes all the way from the Book of Acts until the time of the Reformation, and shortly after that. So, great, great series. In fact, I need to read that series again. Uh, just a really, really good work. Um, obviously, I would recommend that classic work uh, by uh, A.W. Pink, Arthur W. Pink, The Sovereignty of God. Um, I always tell people that uh, if you want to get into the special areas of heaven, they're going to ask you if you've read The Sovereignty of God. So make sure that you read A.W. Pink's The Sovereignty of God. Uh, fantastic work. And uh, some other books I just want to make sure, uh, just some classic works, but that I think every Christian should read. And that is uh, John Owen's The Death of Death and The Death of Christ. Phenomenal work on the atoning work of Christ, defending particular redemption. And uh, Jonathan Edwards' classic essay, The Freedom of the Will. Um, highly recommend that you read that and maybe read it multiple times. Um, once you've read that, you will abandon any sort of <laughs> belief that libertarian the understanding of libertarian free will has any rational basis whatsoever. Uh, Edwards systematically and repeatedly takes libertarian free will and just just thrashes it. It's uh, and demonstrates that it's complete incoherence as even a as even a, a system at all. Um, and then the classic work by uh, Martin Luther, The Bondage of the Will. Highly recommend that you read that book. And a book that I actually just recently read um, and that I would really highly recommend, and that is R.C. Sproul's uh, What is Reformed Theology? Really good work. I, he, he just does a, a great job just, just breaking down uh, <clears throat> Reformed theology as a whole, which is um, he talks about everything from the hypostatic union to the Trinity to obviously the five points of Calvinism. Um, and just the fundamental doctrines of, of reformed theology, uh, uh, covenantal, uh, covenant theology and, and so forth, uh, just a really good work. Uh, a lot of times when people think of reformed theology, they think of the five points of Calvinism, but reformed theology being reformed goes way beyond the five points of Calvinism. So, uh, I would really recommend that particular work. So there's there's some uh, reading to keep you entertained for the next couple years, at least, unless you're a fast reader. So <laughs> so these are different books that I've read over uh, the last three, four years, uh, some of them going back even further than that. So uh, check those out and uh, add them to your to-read list. So... Um, so with that, let's, let's jump into, uh, this first article that I want to talk about, and this is <clears throat> the article, and I will link this in the show notes. Um, let me go ahead and transition back here. I will link this in the show notes, uh, at the end of the show, and it's entitled, uh, Christian Government. Uh, as I said, by Conrad Morell at I'llBeHonest.com. So I will link that, and uh, you can check check that out. But what I, I just want to talk about in this article, and I'm just going to talk about several sections in there, is that fundamentally the issue with the person Conrad's issue here in his writing of this article is... He makes two really fundamental errors that I see New Covenant theologians make a lot and Anabaptists make a lot. Um, and that is a failure to distinguish categories when it comes to um, ethics, when it comes to an ethical system. 
they fail to see the distinction that the New Testament and the Old Testament clearly make um, between laws that govern how we operate as individuals, as Christians, and how we would function even within being in the position of a judge or a magistrate. And I actually, in recently reading uh, Calvin, I've been reading through the Institutes, and I'm almost uh, through it, and um, I came across uh, Calvin's uh, discussion, and I and I noted this because I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna be referencing this in, um, uh, in in discussing this article, but um, in let me find what section this is in so I can this is in book. I think uh, chapter 11 here I'm sure I remember correct this here particular one this is the McNeil uh, this is not the beverage um, translation but uh, this is a section on the jurisdiction of the church and its abuse as seen in the papacy and I'm trying to figure out where I want to start here, but I'm just going to read a portion here of the Institutes here in chapter 11. And then we're going to jump into this article and we're going to see. I, I want you to note here how how Calvin makes the obvious distinction. And he demonstrates here how uh, how Jesus makes the distinction here also. But. And then, and then note as we go through this article how Conrad here has a complete inability, absolute blockage of seeing these categories. He just absolutely cannot see the category distinction between between laws that govern how how the civil magistrate ought to um, judge judiciously. Um, in governing a people and and how he he completely removes this from the umbrella of Christianity and that there is no sort of objective moral standard which governs them. Um, so let's just go ahead and read this. Uh, this section here, so even though we have not mentioned everything that could be presented here and also what we have said has been confined to a few words. I trust we have won such a victory as to leave no reason for anyone to doubt that the spiritual power in which the Pope with his whole royal entourage preens himself is an impious tyranny opposed to God's word and the unjust and unjust towards his people. Indeed, under the term spiritual power, I include boldness in formulating new doctrines by which they have turned the wretched people away from the original purity of God's word, the wicked traditions with which they have ensnared them, and the pretended ecclesiastical jurisdiction which they exercise through suffragans and officials. If we allow Christ a kingdom among us, it can only result in this whole kind of dominion being at once cast down and falling into ruin. Moreover, we are not presently concerned to discuss the power of the sword, which they also claim, because it is not exercised over consciousness. Yet in this respect, it is worth noting that they are always like themselves, that is, far removed from what they wish to be regarded, pastors of the church. I do not blame the individual faults of men, but the common crime of the whole order, the veritable plague of the order, since it is thought to be mutilated unless it is decked out with opulence and proud titles. If we seek the authority of the church uh, of Christ in this matter, there is no doubt that he wished to bar the ministers of his word from civil rule and earthly authority when he said the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, but you do not do so. Matthew twenty twenty five through 26, Luke twenty two twenty five through 26. He means not only that the office of pastor is distinct from that of prince, but also that the things are so different that they cannot come together in one man. 
for that moses carried both offices at once was in the first place through a rare miracle secondly it was a temporary arrangement until things might be better ordered but when a definite form is prescribed by the lord the civil government is left to moses he is ordered to resign the priesthood to his brother exodus eighteen thirteen through twenty six and rightly for it is beyond the nature beyond nature that one man should be sufficient for both burdens this has been in all ages carefully observed in the church and no one of the bishops so long as any true form of the church endured thought of usurping the right of the sword and so um, i'm just going to go ahead and stop there but what i want you to note is that calvin makes a very very clear distinction between the responsibility of the pastorate of the christian and the civil government and one of the things even paul who i'm going to be debating this weekend on his articles on john calvin he claims that calvin was this dictator that ruled over geneva well if anybody has ever even read any history of <laughs> of calvin is to know that that's an actually absurd statement. Calvin was kicked out of Geneva early on after he'd only been there, I think, less than three years. Uh, he didn't become a citizen until 1559, uh, not that long before his death. Um, it, it's really just an absurd statement. I mean, when it comes even to the issue with Servetus, uh, the council did not take his recommendation for um, his penalty and how that should be carried out. Um, Calvin was not a dictator in Geneva, and he did not even take that position. And if you even read his own institutes, he strictly forbids that the pastorate and those that are called to that particular office by God should engage even in uh, civil affairs and enforcing uh, things that belong within the realm of the civil government. He saw a clear distinction within with that in that God had ordained different responsibilities um, in those two different realms and that that um, that God had ordained different laws to govern these different areas uh, and in the last episode that I had um, on New Covenant theology we talked about the Lex Talianus law which I believe is found in Exodus 21 eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and how the Jews had twisted that to to use for personal vengeance when Scripture clearly says, I think Leviticus nineteen eighteen, that vengeance belongs to the Lord. It is not it is not for us, even in the Old Testament, under a theocracy of of the children of Israel, in a covenant relationship with God. Even in that particular situation, personal vengeance was not permitted. Uh, the Lex Talianus law was for the civil government. In fact, if you even read the passage of Exodus 21, you see that it's addressed to judges and to the magistrates. And so Jesus is, <laughs> is correcting the Jews who were failing to sometimes make this particular distinction between what God's law was for the civil government and what God's law was for the people of God in their personal and individual relationships. And a judge who is justly carrying out a punishment against someone who has broken um, God's moral law as prescribed within the civil law is not carrying out personal vengeance. If, if you can't see the distinction there, if you can't see the difference between a police officer or a magistrate arresting a perpetrator or um, sometimes even using lethal force against uh, somebody that is a, a threat to his community or to other people, and you can't see a difference between that and and personal vengeance and that a police officer could not engage in both at the same time and yet still be in complete obedience to God's command and to Christ's command to not take out personal vengeance to to um, live at peace with all men to love our enemies and to bless those that curse us 
the the article that I'm going to read here has this he has this complete block. He does not recognize those category distinctions and he just fails to absolutely to see them at all. And so um, I have several different things highlighted in this article that I want to just read. And the first one I've highlighted here, it says Christian government can be properly applied to only one thing, church government, government among the body of people that are distinctly Christian. That is a theocracy, which is administered by Christ himself through the agency of the Holy Spirit and gifted elders. It is a government of a covenant written not on paper or engraved in stone, but in the hearts of the governed. Second Corinthians 3, 3 and Hebrews ten sixteen. So one of the first things he does very early on in his article is he says that Christian government or rulership is only within the church. And if you read Calvin, he very clearly makes the distinction here that it is the church's uh, responsibility to uh, rule within the church. The elders are to rule within the within the church and their um, punishments for sin are not the same ones that the civil government enacts. Uh, things like re, um First, going to an individual, Matthew 18, taking another brother, depending on what type of sin, rebuking the sin before the church, engaging in excommunication or blocking from the Lord's Supper, um, things like that. That Those were the things that Calvin noted are within the, the rulership of the elders within the church, and that is their jurisdiction. Uh, so in other words, if somebody steals, so you have somebody in the church that, steals something the church needs to engage in disciplinary action but within the boundaries of what what and and Jesus actually says this that you are not to be as the gentiles rulers that is not how you rule and so those within the church don't rule that way we don't we don't imprison our parishioners who engage in a sin that needs to be disciplined the rulers and the elders within the church um, follow what Christ and the apostles mandated to be how they need to govern the church. But that is distinct from the way that civil government is governed. But civil government needs to be governed by uh, a moral standard also. And God has given prescriptions. God has given a moral law and there is there is general equity even found within the civil law of uh, the law of Moses that can be used to see what is just and what a civil government should enact as um, laws that are um, that are fair and that are good and that are moral. And so. The first thing that you note in this article is he has absolutely no ability to recognize this particular distinction. And he goes down further, and this is in paragraph, um, at the end of paragraph 6 and going into 7, he goes, I will go further yet and show that it would be a disaster to implement exclusively Christian principles in the process of human government. Christianity brings no new morality into the world. Not only did Judaism have a perfect moral code delivered by the one true God, most major religions in the world throughout the centuries have had the same moral code in some form as spelled out in the Mosaic Law. Also, it is true that men in any degree of civilization everywhere make laws strikingly close to the moral principles that we embrace as Christians. So far as Christian doctrine is concerned, we only have two things that we can call exclusively Christian Grace and liberty. Um, well, fundamentally, this is true because all men are created within the image of God. So all men have a moral code, the moral law. And this is in Romans chapter two, verse 15. They have the works of the law written upon their heart, which is why um, their conscience accuses them and sometimes excuses them, Paul says. So. Christianity here, he says, brings no new morality into the world. Well, no, but the God of Christianity is the source and the objective standard for all of this morality. 
And this applies in all realms, whether in civil or within personal interactions uh, within the Christian church and um, what Christians are under obligation, how we ought to live. Um, so God's law applies to all people, no matter what their position is in the world, whether they hold a position of a magistrate or they don't. Um, he goes on further to say in a few, uh, about a paragraph or so later, it says, because the Christian has free mercy and pardon, has been granted reprieve from God's justice and retribution. The guiding principles of the Christian community is the same. Jesus gives them on the Sermon on the Mount. So notice here how he takes this typical New Covenant theology position that Jesus delivered a new law on the Sermon on the Mount, which he refers to the law of Christ. Well, we talked about that. I'm not going to repeat and go over that, but I went over that back in my episode on New Covenant theology. But notice how he that's how he sees that and he sees that if any that that these new this new law that he believes Christ has enacted is just not and he goes on this article just it's just not compatible with civil government so therefore no civil government can be christian because no civil government can can um order its government by the sermon on the mount the the issue is is that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount was intended for civil government. And to say that that's the only thing that can make a civil government Christian um, or to enact laws in accordance to God's revelation is absurd because that was not Jesus' intention at all. Matthew 5 is written to individual persons. Um, it's not written to how civil governments ought to order uh, their communities and their nation and protect the nation. Um, in other words, when Jesus told us to turn the other cheek when somebody strikes you, well, first of all, that is in reference to um, uh, not in particular uh, life-threatening violence against a person. Uh, a slap on the cheek is not a life-threatening uh, threat against a person. It's more of an insult. And um, <laughs> this is once again an application to individuals. It is a complete category error to try to say that that if a secular or a civil government, not necessarily secular, but if a civil government does not adhere to Jesus' standard here of, of turning the other cheek if you're struck on the opposite cheek, that... Uh, therefore, that civil government can't be Christian is a major conflation of categories from the Sermon on the Mount. He goes on to say, we are to love our enemies, bless them who curse us, do good to those who abuse us, to take no vengeance, to give to the borrower, ask nothing in return, to forgive unceasingly those who unceasingly offend us. There is no place in the Christian economy for punishment or revenge. That has all been undertaken by God alone in the person of Christ, such as the nature of Christianity and such are all the principles that are uniquely Christian. These kind of principles are obviously only work only and in among those who are Christians, born again people. Only spiritually renewed persons can turn the other cheek when struck, can lovingly bestow a gift upon the person who has just deprived him of his own property. And it is obvious that these rules are given to bring truth to bear upon only those who are teachable Christians themselves. Otherwise a man would quickly lose all he had and become so downtrodden as to be incapacitated to serve God at all. We are not to give what is holy to dogs or cast our pearls before swine. Human government on the other hand is based upon entirely different principles. And I'm going to talk about this here in a little bit. It is defined soundly by law constitutions and statutes written and recorded by which man's actions are to be governed while christians have no law but christ non-christians recognize no law in christ at all and must be controlled by men's laws and corresponding penalties so notice here it says here that human government on the other hand is based upon entirely different principles now he makes a major presuppositional error later on but notice he's even starting to make the error here. 
he says is based upon entirely different principles. Well, my question for you, Conrad, is what are those principles? What is the assumed moral standard by which human government ought to be based? Notice here that he says down here in a later chapter, he says here, this nation has never been Christian, speaking of the United States of America. It was once far more moral than it is now because it was governed by principles. Notice he's using the term principles there again. Governed by principles laid down in God's law for human government. Notice here that he is assuming a moral standard that ought to be applied to a nation. Notice how he said that we, our nation used to be the civil government is what he's speaking of here, used to be more moral. Okay, according to what standard? You're denying that there is any particular standard that can apply to a nation so that it can be in accordance to God's revelation. He's saying that that doesn't, that doesn't exist. You, there's no such thing as a Christian government. And he he keeps going on talking about how police officers and things like that could not could not engage in um, executing civil law because they would be violating the law of Christ, which is applied upon them. And this is, once again, just an absolute failure to see the distinctions in the categories that exist within God's law, that exist within the word of God itself. Um, it, it's, it's, for example, the, the common error that I see all the time that comes with even like this, like the sixth commandment, for example, because the King James at one point made the mistake of translating it as thou shalt not kill instead of thou shalt not murder. Uh, people completely fail to see the category distinction between killing and murder. There is a, a very big difference between those two categories. Um, in Genesis chapter, um, is it eight? Um, after Noah's flood, God instructed that if any man should take man's blood, his blood should be required of him. So this was even before the Mosaic law. So if somebody executed justice against someone who had actually murdered, unlawfully taken another man's life, and the law of God says that if a man unlawfully takes another man's life, murders him, his blood is required of him. Is the other, is the is the executioner of justice um, in this particular case who executes somebody who had murdered somebody else? Is now he also a murderer? Don't we see the category distinctions there? Notice how even in Genesis eight, there there's the obvious distinction because the one who executes the person who uh, shed man's blood is not considered a murderer. But the one who shed innocent man's blood is the one who is considered a murderer and is the one who um, justice needs to be applied to. But the, the, the error that Conrad makes here in this article is that he continually conflates categories and he keeps assuming some sort of moral standard which does somehow apply to civil government, but he never goes into what that actually really is. And he he does make the point here, it says laid down in God's law for human government, but his entire argument in the article is that that doesn't make a nation or a civil government Christian by actually following the principles laid down in God's law for human government. He says that that's not possible. Uh, let's look at um, the next paragraph here. Christian laws, it must be evident by now that laws which are passed to regulate a human society must not be Christian. While Christianity sanctions the right to gain and own property and forbid stealing, it allows no penalty for one who does steal. While it expressly forbids any kind of sexual morality, the Christian cannot stone the adulterer or execute the homosexual and rapist. Human history has demonstrated that civil order among men cannot long be maintained when capital punishment is not threatened and used. Yet Christ tells us that if we are not ourselves sinless, we cannot condemn, 
the murderer as a greater sinner. No one is holy enough to cast the first stone. Failure to see categories is what I'm seeing here again. Failure to see the categories that the church has been given a different category of rulership versus the civil. And that is what he's failing to see here is that the church has been given a different category of rulership than what civil rulership is within the church. The church governs itself differently. If we have somebody that, um, for example, adultery used to be a crime in the United States, but were churches back when that was a crime? Should they have engaged in uh, penal uh, punishment against someone? No, that would have been going outside the bounds of jurisdiction given to us by Christ within the church. But can a civil government enact just penalties for uh, for crimes which go against God's moral law? And can they do so and be in accordance to God's word and not violate Christian principles? Absolutely, because there are categories within Scripture. And we see those categories very clearly in the Old Testament. We see the... Uh, Lex Talianus laws I brought up before that governed how the magistrates were to execute justice, but that vengeance is not for the personal individual. In fact, even the judge and magistrate himself was not to take vengeance into his own hand, personal vengeance uh, into his own hand, but yet he still could execute judgment in a civil um, situation. And he notes down here again, we must have moral laws in accordance with a strict code of justice. He says this again. Um, once again, this is a presuppositional problem. According to what standard um, ought we to have moral laws in our nation in accordance to a strict code of justice? And is this justice supposed to be an audit to be in accordance to God's word? Is there anything at all um, for for any Christian who... Um, um, is within the the civil government. Um, is there anything in God's word to govern how they ought to uh, enact laws and how they ought to impart justice? Um, and I believe there is. Um, I think God's word is clear. We have we have um, uh, da um, we have Daniel in the context of the Babylonian government. We have uh, Joseph in the context of the Egyptian government who governed those nations. And I believe that they did that with principles um, that came from God's word and they executed justice in those lands. And that was not in violation of God's prescriptive will for their own personal lives and how they ought to treat others. Um he notes here also, it says, Christian magistrates, it says, may men charged with the responsibility of enforcing and executing civil and ceremonial law perform, uh, sorry, civil and criminal law perform their jobs in a Christian manner? Yes, as a question. We should certainly hope not. The same conflict in the realm of honesty, openness versus Deception and secrecy applies in dealing with criminals as it does with alien governments. Can you imagine the vice squad giving public notice of its intentions to raid such and such a nightclub, whorehouse, drug distribution center at such and such a time? Notice how the other thing is here is he fails to <laughs> understand what deception and lying even is. Not publicly announcing what you're going to do is not deception. Um, I, 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 sorry, he, you completely lost me there that if, <laughs> if a police department does not publicly announce that they're going to raid a particular drug establishment, that that puts them in violation of Christian principles. Uh, oh, okay. Um, sorry, you, you really lost me on that one. Uh, can you imagine a policeman turning the other cheek when a felon resists arrest? Once again, category error. 
does the is the Christian policeman is he just as much of a Christian when he cuffs the guy, throws him to the ground, uh, subdues him, and hauls him off to jail for his crime? Can can he be a Christian in that same act? And the very next day, in a personal interaction with somebody else that he's not uh, engaging in uh, civil. Uh, trying to arrest them for some sort of uh, civil infraction, but he's engaging in a personal discussion with somebody and somebody insults him or whatever, and he takes it gracefully as a Christian. Um, I, I just, I, I'm failing, I'm sorry, to to see why you can't see those category distinctions. Um, who would advocate a judge who, when faced with a proven criminal, always forgives him and turns him loose. Oh, <laughs> once again, I'm sorry, I, I, I don't see where you're getting this from. I, I, I don't understand how you can't see the different categories here. That that same judge could be a Christian, and he could put a a criminal who was proven to have committed his crime. He can justly justly give him the penalty for him and then yet engage in personal forgiveness within his own life i i don't i don't see why you can't see the different categories there when scripture makes those categories in the old testament when david executed justice within the realm as king over the nation of israel um when he executed justice, was he going against God's prescriptive will? Because it is God's requirement has always been for us to forgive our enemies. And in fact, you actually see David doing that. Remember when Absalom, his son, had um, uh, basically usurped his throne and he's escaping out uh, from Jerusalem and um a relative of Saul is throwing dirt clods at him and cursing at him. How does he treat that situation? He forgives the man. He doesn't. He doesn't. Uh, he doesn't uh, punish him, even though his own soldiers um, wanted to punish him in that situation. But he forgives him. I. I. I just don't see how you can't see the distinction. Um, fail to to see why that is not obvious. But um, the other uh, article that uh, Greg sent me, and I wanted to just briefly mention it, was an article published by uh, Jeff Robinson on the Gospel Coalition entitled, um, it's kind of an interesting read, um, What Does Reformed Arminian Meet a Reformed Arminian? is the title of the uh, the article. And he goes on to talk about how there has been an increase of, you know, reformed Arminians and how uh, how they they hold to a lot of uh, particularly particular doctrines that uh, mostly uh, Calvinists hold to and not Arminians. And so I want to read this one section in here. thought that was kind of interesting and wanted to uh, briefly talk about this. But it says, A growing number of evangelicals fit a unique profile in the Calvinist-Arminian conversation. They see Scripture as not supporting a traditional Calvinistic view of predestination grace and human freedom yet they disagree with most arminians rejection of form doctrines of total depravity penal substitutionary atonement and the imputation of christ's righteousness righteousness of christ in justification and progressive as opposed to entire sanctification wesleyan arminianism there for these individuals and for the entire calvinist arminian conversation the reformed arminian stream of thought offers fruitful possibilities well, I just wanted to briefly um, talk about this. It says here that yet they um, actually agree with the Reformed doctrines of total depravity. 
I'm sorry, there is no way that any Arminian can actually hold to the doctrine of total depravity. They may give lip service to it, but it is not a functional, it is not the functional doctrine of total depravity. Uh, one of the churches that we attended, uh, used to attend to uh, a while ago, um, the pastor would often mention that he was totally depraved and that he talked about total depravity. However, he did not really believe the Reformed doctrine of total depravity because since the Arminian believes that man is all given this prevenient grace. Everyone gets this prevenient grace. They no longer have a functional total depravity. Man is no longer in a situation. He's in this state of equilibrium when it comes to the gospel. So he's not. So they do not affirm. I, this is one thing that really bugs me is when even reformed Calvinists say that Arminians actually synergists actually hold to total depravity. No, they don't. There's no possible way they can hold to the Reformed doctrine of total depravity because if you truly hold to the Reformed doctrine of total depravity, you have to hold to unconditional election. Because if man is truly totally depraved, then there is no way, there is no way that he can come to Christ unless God gives him irresistible grace and um, elects him unto salvation. The, these doctrines all go together. So the Arminian may give lip service to total depravity, but functionally, he's uh, he's just as Pelagian as the full-blown Pelagian when it comes to man's will when it comes to rejection or acceptance of the gospel. Because man has the ability to accept it or reject it from himself. Not from, it doesn't even come from the grace of God. God's grace given to him preveniently does not even enable him to accept and to believe the gospel. I mean, he makes it possible that he could if he chooses to, but it doesn't actually accomplish anything um, within him. So it's not a functional, uh, truly biblical view of total depravity. They just, they can't really hold to it. And I actually say the same thing with penal substitutionary atonement. An Arminian cannot hold to penal substitutionary atonement. It is not possible. I did have one Arminian tell me uh, several years ago, after questioning him for a while, he said that, um, he said that, well, God looked forward in time and Christ died only for those that God foresaw would believe. Well, the issue I have with that with the traditional five-point Arminian is he believes somebody can lose their salvation. So they were once saved, and now they're not saved. And if they die in that particular state, they go to hell. Well, so did Christ atone? Was he a substitute for that person who he looked forward in time, saw that they were going to be saved for several years, but then they dropped away from the faith and they died without being saved. So did Christ die for that person? Did he just die for their sins during the time that they were Christians and then didn't die for their other sins? How is that dying as a substitute and perfecting that person uh, for all time? That, that's not a perfecting sacrifice. That's not penal substitutionary atonement. There's no way functionally an Arminian can actually hold to penal substitutionary atonement. No no way. Um, they may give lip service to it. They may say, Christ died in my place. Uh, but you can't really question them much more beyond that because they're not going to really have any sort of full understanding of that other than maybe Christ died for all of their sins except for the sin of unbelief. Um um, I don't know. I just don't know how that works out. And it also comes down to the imputation of Christ's righteousness, um, righteousness of Christ in justification. So if we are justified and given the righteousness of Christ and 
we are now righteous in the sight of God because of the imputation of the righteousness of Christ, how could we possibly fall away and no longer be saved if God is looking at us through the perfect righteousness of Christ? Because then no sin that we could do would separate us from the love of God. That is the imputation of Christ's righteousness. So if you can fall away, then you have not been given. If you can lose your salvation, then you have not been given the perfect righteousness of Christ. So therefore, you can't believe in the imputation of the righteousness of Christ in justification. I mean, you can believe in infused righteousness like the Roman Catholics, that, you know, God infuses Christ's righteousness into you, to enable you to now be intrinsically you and of yourself be righteous enough. But you can't have Christ's righteousness imputed to you. Um, and so progressive uh, as opposed to entire sanctification. Okay. I mean, I, I, I could see an Arminian, um, you know, possibly holding to that. But the rest of these doctrines here, I'm sorry, an Arminian, a synergist just can't hold to it. You can't you can't hold to these doctrines. Uh, you can give lip service to them, but you, you can't be questioned much beyond a very surface level um, on them at all. And so, I it just it often bothers me, and I and I've heard, you know, other Calvinists say, you know, well, you know, these this Arminian he believes in total depravity and penal substitutionary atonement. Well, I'm I'm sorry, I don't think he really does. Um, you, you can't really hold to those doctrines from a synergistic perspective. You, you just can't. Um, you know, unfortunately, or fortunately, actually, you know, most Armenians are very inconsistent. And I remember when I was. Um, I believed the sacrifice of Christ had perfected me, um, but I did not have a full understanding of it. And I didn't until I came to accept the doctrines of grace. And then I understood um, substitutionary atonement. I understood the imputation of Christ's righteousness. I understood total depravity and truly understood those doctrines. Um, so he also writes here, I, I find most Calvinistic event, uh, evangelicals are not at all acquainted with the writings of Arminius, just as most Arminian evangelicals aren't acquainted with Calvin's writings. That is a shame. It wasn't always this way. It seems there is a lot more insularity these days in the evangelical community a lot less getting beyond your soteriological tribe to really understand others it's odd that i can have so much in common with some calvinists with regard to the person and work in the gospel of christ justification sanctification christian worldview apologetics epistemology cultural engagement eschatology and so on and even on the views of baptism and charismatic gifts but all those commonalities are often disregarded because of one fact. I'm not a Calvinist. I don't believe in unconditional election. And, uh, you know, <laughs> one of the things is I have actually read some of, and I should have actually had some of those quotes ready, but um, I have read uh, or um, had read to me, actually, um, uh, our the pastor at our church, uh, read quite a bit from Arminius uh, in our series on the decrees of God. And um, personally, I'll admit, I haven't read <laughs> much of Arminius on my own. But uh, some of the things that Arminius said were very, very troubling and um, very concerning. And so I would uh, I would not be that uh, excited <laughs> about reading his writings. I'd rather read more solid individuals. Um, so those are just uh, my few comments on that particular article. Um, I just, I don't think that um, the term reformed in Arminian can just go together very well. So that's my opinion on that. Um, alrighty. Well, that is all I have today. Actually, I ended up going an hour. <laughs> Didn't expect to do that. Uh, hopefully you can put up with my ramblings, uh, today. And, uh, 
Uh, we will see you guys next Saturday, uh, Lord willing, uh, Saturday morning in my discussion with Paul. So God bless. Not inherit God's kingdom.